0: This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is sponsored by Mudgear. Mudgear serves the unleashed. They've created a brand of tough, strong, functional performance gear. This stuff is built to endure and push you along the way. Because like you, Mudgear's made tougher. From their custom-created Mudgear race jersey to their trail socks, it's all built for the outdoor athlete. I'm wearing a Mudgear t-shirt Right now, their race shirts, those bad boys, they're all built in the USA. It's just good stuff. Get sweaty, get dirty. It's all good. Whether it's for a road race or an obstacle adventure, Mudgear can help you gear up for the extreme performance. We have an exclusive for all. Pick up the six listeners. Go to mudgear.com slash P-U-T six, the number six. That's mudgear.com slash P-U-T and the number six and you're going to save 15% off your order, just like that. But it's only for Pick Up the Six listeners. Go to mudgear.com slash P-U-T-6, the number six, and let's get after it. Mudgear, it's made tougher. Major Chris Walsh has a little Ricky Bobby in him. He likes to go fast. He also wears a few uniforms along the way. United States Air Force Special Operator, Race Car Driver, and Bob Bobsledder. Chris is aiming to make history, and we're pumped to buckle up on this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Major Chris Walsh, welcome to the
1: show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Really, really excited to be here.
0: I'm pumped. Uh, we're only doing audio, but I've taken a screenshot of this setup that you're in, and we'll explain what it is in a few moments, but you are officially sitting in the coolest home studio i've ever seen because it's basically a full-on virtual race car setup that you're you're sitting in we'll we'll talk about why you're in but but just tell us I mean, what what are you in right now
1: yeah so it's uh i would say it's a professional grade um racing simulator um and the the idea behind it started out like very simple like plastic toy essentially that Mm -hmm. got me into a playstation and then as I progressed in motorsport and is really simulation first, um, I just was like, Hey, I want the, the most badass realistic thing I can get. And uh, that's what I have tried to design at home. So it's it's gone. It, yeah, I mean, I love it. It's I spend way too much time in here, but it, it's helpful. So
0: it's uh it's an adult playing video games, is pretty much what it looks yeah. like. We're gonna talk about what it is, why you've got that in your home and in the importance of it. But let's get to know you a little bit uh so chris walsh and i found out as we're talking before we hit record where i'm sitting right now you're not but about an hour away hour and a half from where i'm at and come to find out where i live in apex north carolina you grew up like right down the road in Cary, which is the next town over so what a small world this is man
1: yeah no that's that's wild i've been to apex a ton so yeah. played the high, i played against other high schools there and in, in high school sports yeah so i i guess uh We ended up in North Carolina. My folks moved here after they got off active duty in the Air Force. So they met in tech school. Um, I guess this would be 1984. (laughs) And then uh, very shortly thereafter in 1986 is when, you know, when they had me, but they had, they had already PCSed over the Philippines. So actually I was born overseas at what was Clark Air Base. And yeah, that's, that's kind of the story. And then they had family here and moved back to North Carolina and I just kind of grew up there the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. So a little bit of military uh, legacy and history in that family. So tell me how a kid uh, from Cary, North Carolina ends up in the air force and ends up as a special tactics officer. Talk me through that journey for you.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, my, my journey to special operations, I would say started as, you know, as a kid, my, you know, having my folks do, they were still reservists the whole time I grew up and, they, they did their reserve duty here at Pope, which is, you know, Pope Fort Bragg is a mecca of special operations. Um, and so I got exposed to those groups of people, very young age and got to do, there's this thing called Robin's age, which is kind of a culmination thing for the Green Beret pipeline. Um, and I got to go out and be like the, the indigenous force that they train and, uh, you know, as a kid. And I just, in that moment, I was like, this is it, this right. is what I want to be doing. Um, and so I really wanted to be in the army and go that route, but it was just, it was kind of a set of circumstances between where I went to college and, you know, what my parents kind of guided me towards doing, um, led me to being in the air force. And in that journey, I was like, Hey, what, what does the air force have to offer? I knew they had some sort of special operations and I learned about special tactics and the special tactics officer, uh, and the, and the, uh, combat rescue officer is another career field. And so that was what I set my sights on. And, It took me a few years to get there you know it wasn't my first job out of rotc when i commissioned to the air force i started out as as an aircraft maintain maintenance officer um but i eventually cross-trained and and got where i wanted to be so
0: when were you guys at pope what's the what's the year range that you were growing up there
1: i would say 87 to 2004 when i went to college
0: (laughs) so so the parallels uh from 1990 1991 to 96 we're at seymour johnson air force base my dad's right. flying in the 334th eagles the he's squadron commander the 335th the chiefs later when i'm in college he's back as the wing commander for the fourth fighter squadrons and uh oh, the fourth nice. group so not too far man we weren't too far yeah. apart through all of this journey. throw away <laughs> it's not too far that's that's wild uh, man, special ops in the air force, All right? So what's your job entail? what do what are you doing when you're working with that uniform on? Yeah,
1: my, uh, my job in, in special operations and special tactics in the air force, um, you know, is uh, the role of special tactics is very, it kind of is very broad. So we do a bunch of different things, uh, to support special operations. Um, what I do in the training pipeline and what a sto is traditionally trained to do, um, is the same thing as like a combat controller from like a skill set perspective. So, that focus is on you know air to ground integration, airfield um, establishment and control. Uh, we do terminal air control as well, which is an additional skill that we get after the pipeline. In most cases, um, they do a thing, they call it now global access, which kind of encompasses all of those concepts, like mm-hmm. being able to establish an airhead if we were to be in a major ground conflict or major conflict, um, be able to establish an airhead on a small scale. You know, it could be just the, the hostage rescue somewhere or it could be to do a humanitarian evacuation. So um, the big piece that we bring to the table is you know, they're all FAA air traffic controllers when they graduate the pipeline, combat controllers are. Um, and so we bring a specialty like that to the to the table. And inside of that, we can do like, uh, we can survey areas to say, hey, you can land airplanes here in this yeah. many, and this big, and you know, those types of ideas. So, uh, and then on the other side of the house where the combat rescue side is involved is we have the rescue side of the house, which, um, which stows still we have those personnel in our squadrons and they can do, you know, extrication and some of the high end, high angle rescue collapse structure, things that, you know, they're very good medics. But like a, an Army Green Beret Delta, for example, is a very good field medic. He doesn't have a lot of rescue skill sets. So that's mm-hmm. where we are the niche there to, to be able to fill that that role. Um so, yeah, that's I mean, it's very There's a lot more I could talk about, but as, as a quick down and dirty, I think that No, I, mean, I might it.
0: ask you a little bit more. You know, our listeners have been very fortunate. I know I feel the same way to be able to hear stories like that. So the second episode we ever produced here was with Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Spanky Peterson, who flew the Pavehawk helicopter who rescued Marcus Luttrell. And he talks a lot about what that that was an Air Force Reserve crew, his six man crew on that Pave Hawk. Um, but he talks about the PJs, right? That jump out of that helicopter that go boots on the ground to grab Marcus, right? Put him in the helicopter, get him out of there. So that's one of the roles we've heard about on our show before. We also had the honor of talking to Thad Forrester, whose brother Mark was killed in combat and he was a combat controller as well. So our listeners have a bit of a sense and we've got a lot of military folks that listen and obviously just fans of your work (laughs) for what you guys do (laughs) that listen as well. So our listeners have a bit of sense of that. Do you mind, I mean, if you've got any, Examples of maybe picking up the six that you've seen in your career, uh, being in that role. That even one that that jumps out that you wouldn't mind sharing with us.
1: Um, I mean, there's a lot of man the stories that guys have. I don't have. I don't think I have any really personally great stories. I've got a lot of good stories that I think the career field has. You know, the guys in the career field have exemplified what we're capable of. And, you know, um, just from like, I think one thing that's kind of cool to highlight is the humanitarian effort. So like when, um, the big earthquake happened down in Haiti and it like pretty much decimated the Island and there was no one to control the airfield, our guys deployed down from the two, three STS, uh, out of Florida. And they went down there and ran an airfield off of like a field table, like, like a no a no crap, like fold-out table they're writing everything down they're flying in airliners and all this supplies and everything to get people down there to do rescue to provide relief to all the people to everyone that was that was struggling in haiti at the time and that's just like one small piece of what we do but it's still remarkable you know they did the same thing in japan when the tsunami came through there um so i like to highlight the humanitarian thing because it's you just don't normally equate that to a combat geared career field so i think that's cool i mean on the battlefield I mean, Mark is a great example of what, you know, what those guys are capable of. John Chapman and, you know, um, even a friend of mine that I knew in the pipeline, Matt Roland, you know, he he got killed in Afghanistan. And, you know, the last thing he was doing was figuring out a way to save his team from getting shot up by an insider attack. Like that's that's like, you know, the type of people that we have in the career field, that I think, are you know, to their dying breath. In some cases, they will do everything they can to take care of the guys next to them. And that's, that was one of the things I found very attractive about the group of men and, and women that, that I would be working with. So
0: there's got to be such a level of confidence as well. And Spanky talked about it a lot. He said, you know, I talked to a lot of my pilot friends that, that know the level of confidence. If I'm flying a sortie, if I'm flying a mission into here and things go haywire and I get in a bad situation, I know you're coming to get me. And the other side of that, too, is going into a mission, knowing the amount of work that your guys and gals have put into ensuring everything's prepped for that. So when they are going in with eyes on target, right, you, you, you've set kind of the state. Is that a fair assessment as to what that relationship looks like? Yeah,
1: yeah I mean, you know, I, I equate it having, you know, done some Olympic, at least world class level competition and seeing what kind of prep requires from sports, I really equate what these guys do and what guys and gals do as to, it's very similar, like being a Mm -hmm. professional athlete. Like it requires a lot of practice, more practice that you put in than you actually have to do the the thing that you're working for, you know, like the Mm -hmm. hours behind it, the months, I mean, the train ups that these guys go through every year to deploy. And we've been doing that for, I mean, for 20 years now, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, it's intense. And so they're very good at it. And yeah, the confidence exists. And, you know, one of the things that When we go through this assessment and selection process and we go through the pipeline and we get guys uh, into the career field. One of the things that is big on our agenda is like making sure we have individuals that are very, very strong and capable right so that you know when you jump out of an airplane or you're out there on the battlefield, like the guy next to you is just as capable as you are, Um, and that is that brings that breeds confidence. Cause you don't have to think about like, Hey, that guy's got his job and I do mine. And if everyone does their piece, you know, we'll usually come out of this just fine.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, you thought you talk about thousands of flight hours, yeah. thousands of hours uh, training Spanky talked about thousands of flight hours, right? All these hours of goggle training for 40 seconds in a brownout yeah. and things go haywire. And he's able to mm-hmm. lean in on that. But you talk about thousands of hours of training, all the time you've spent in that digital simulator that you're sitting in right now for race car driving, and all the training that goes into being an athlete. So let's get into that a little bit. And, okay. and first and foremost, before we do that, we're going to talk about these cool things that you're working on now. Know that on behalf of our listeners and our audience, we're so thankful for all that you've done for our country, all you continue to do, Chris. So thank you for that, uh, first and foremost. All right, man. So you love going fast you heard on the read-in that you're a race car driver and a bobsledder let's talk race car driving first bobsledding second how did you how do you get to this point where now you're pursuing this career trying to be an active duty military member and a professional race car driver at the same time how does all this play out
1: you know if i i don't even know if i have the answer to that question yet (laughs) that's that's kind of the journey i'm on and trying to figure out um I got into it you know uh i think i said like you you read that article that that they did out here at the on the pilot um but i got into it really through st like getting into riding dirt bikes is something we do as part of our airfield mission um and that just kind of sparked that need for speed like i've always loved racing in formula one since i was a kid it was just never accessible to me so uh i decided like hey motorcycles is more affordable version of racing. So I got into racing street motorcycles at my first duty station up in Washington. And it was very periodic. Like I couldn't go all the time because, you know, I'm doing a job. Like I don't, I don't have all the free time in the world to, to race. So I just did it as much as I could. And you know, those motorcycles would go like 180 miles an hour on this track. So quick, you know, like lots of speed and, um, but that wasn't really why I liked it. You know, honestly, if, if we got into that aspect of it, like, I, I'm not just chasing the pure speed. It's really the, it's kind of the the calmness that exists in the, in the act of, of racing. Um, but yeah, so I got into, to racing that way. And then I took a pause and started bobsledding. Um, motorcycle racing is not safe and is can lead you to injury. So I actually got hurt at one point. So I decided, Hey, I can't be a good athlete and be doing something like this, especially bikes. Um, so I I took a step away. And then during the pandemic, uh, an ex-teammate from the Bobsled team actually started working for a company called iRacing. And he was like, Hey, I've got this simulator. You want to try it out? And I tried it out, and I was just like immediately hooked because it just fed that need, even though it was digital. Um, so I started that during the pandemic, got really into it, and then uh I just decided, hey, I gotta take this to the track and went and did some really low-level endurance style racing where you drive for like eight hours and you have a team of guys. Um, and you just pay to rent your seat as they call it, and you just pay for a portion of that drive. And yeah, that's just how it started. We took a podium in the first race I ever went to, I, it was the fastest lap. So it, like, I was like, Hey, maybe I have a skill set here that, you know, is worth, inv- uh, you know, looking into and, um, improving. So I just kept doing that built up, got to racing. One of those lower level t- endurance races with a pro team called AOA racing. And, um, They race IMSA and I was, and now they started SRO with me, which is a a pro series here in the U S and I talked to the owner and I did well with him in my first race, took a podium in our second race together. I was fastest in the car both days. So he was like, yeah, I think you probably have some talent. We could probably give it a shot. And so we eventually I had to, you know, I took an investment on myself on this one. My wife was Mm -hmm. like, Hey, let's just go spend some money and go racing. And, uh, so we did that and you know it went really well and took third in my first pro race first time i'd ever driven the car that weekend first time on the tire so it was yeah i I was really happy with the the results
0: i want to talk about what kind of cars we're talking about racing here but when you when you step foot on the track or put wheels on the track and you're in that car for the first time as opposed to being behind the digital screen there i mean just what was that feeling like of of getting out there and, and grabbing wheel on track and and getting moving.
1: Yeah. I mean, luckily, like it wasn't my first experience driving. So that was good. You know, I had been racing a little bit, but you know, it's a totally different ball game when you're talking pro level, like there's, it's just the pressure there is a lot higher than I was expecting and being on slick tires are like incredibly grippy. So I had to adjust to that. I'd never done that before, but honestly, like the amount of practice I put into the same, I probably put I don't know, a hundred hours, maybe, maybe more in the same, just for that race with that exact same car on that exact same track, you know, and the correlation of like comfort level that it gave me initially, like, Hey, I know the steering wheel. I know where everything is in this car already. And I know this track really well. And I have an idea of how this car should handle. It's not perfect. Gave me an incredible amount of confidence right away. And it, so it just took me a few laps to kind of feel it out. And I think my first practice session, I was the second fastest in the field. So the, you know, that, that was pretty cool to come out and, and, and kind of figure that stuff out. And I still have a ton to learn, but you know, it's that, that was not having that lifelong background of racing. I've leaned heavily on the simulation piece where I can put in all those hours. You know, they say 10,000 hours for anything. I try to make up that time by using the SIM to help me there. So
0: all right, So, what kind of cars are we talking about racing here? What's, what's this so, thing look like?
1: yeah i'm racing a bmw uh, m2 um csr club sport racing is what it's uh, i think is what it stands for i don't know there's a lot of acronyms now but essentially it's a factory built bmw m2 race car um and it runs in this series called tc america um so yeah then that that's feeds you into higher level gt cars we call it sports car racing so as you move up there's all sorts of manufacturers you have everything from hyundai to acura to porsche to bmw lamborghini ferrari like any car any car manufacturer that makes sports cars is generally racing these types yeah. of races so um yeah
0: and we're talking more of a road course than we exactly
1: are. road course 100 right? yeah
0: yep. so what, what kind of places are you guys racing in where, where have your journeys taken you so far
1: yeah, I mean the, the series runs all over the country. I haven't gone to every round yet, mainly because I'm, you know, it's I don't have the money to do all that. I'm working on figuring out sponsors and stuff. But they go all the way from California, um, Laguna Seca, Sonoma. Uh, they go to Circuit of the Americas out in Austin, Texas. Um, road Atlanta, Sebring in Florida, uh, VIR, which is just Virginia International Raceway, which is just north of me or of us, I should say. Um, Charlotte Motor Speedway. There's a road course out there. All the way up to Watkins Glen, New York, Wisconsin, Road America, so all over the country. There's you can go everywhere. So
0: we got to try to get you connected with Adam Corolla. I mean, he's a huge race car guy. Uh, really, he's raced. He's raced at a few of those courses you just mentioned, Laguna Seca. I, I know for sure. Yeah, having been at at once a, a, a few years ago, pretty loyal Corolla listener. And uh he's a big race car guy. He'd probably oh, cool. he, I'm sure he'd love to hear
1: be awesome. story a little bit. Let's
0: see if we can, can't make that happen. I yeah, can't promise anything. Yeah, no, tell me awesome. about these cars, man. I mean, what kind of speed are we talking about? Right. i I can picture, I've seen a picture of it before, but take us into one.
1: Yeah. So um the BMW M2 specifically is the cool thing is, I mean, it's a factory built car. So a lot of race cars that you'll see at lower levels, people took a street car and converted it. So they put in a cage and all this stuff. The nice yeah. thing about this is it rolled off the line exactly the way you got it, uh, which is also cool because the equipment's all even across the board between me and the other guys driving it. Um, but very ba- bare bones, you've got uh, a dash, which is digital, a big, it's essentially an LCD screen, which gives you all the you know temperatures, lab times, speeds, all that stuff is on there, um, shift to gears. Uh, and then like a literally, I don't know, an eight by 12 console that has all your controls for the car on it that's it um and there's nothing else it's just open space exposed wires Do you don't even just, have a
0: cup holder in that thing
1: no no cup holder it's funny though they they have you know how you have to have a key in your hand to sure. like start cars nowadays that key that's still the way that the ignition system works so the key is actually like strapped into the center console next it's to it's not you.
0: like in a nascar where you see those guys flipping
1: yeah. I mean, I have switches, but they're each car is a little different. Yeah. There are cars like that, but, um, so, and other than that, from the external side, it looks almost like the street version of the car. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just nothing in it. So that makes it lighter, uh, probably a bit more power, um, suspension is a little different, bigger brakes, but, uh, other than that, a pretty, pretty basic car and our speed that we hit at Virginia international, which has a decent, decently long straightaway, I think, um, the second day I had the second fastest speed, it was 150.3 miles an hour. So wow. quick, but you know, well, when quick, I compare it to right, motorcycles, yeah, of yeah. course,
0: for sure. Yeah. If you could open it up, right? If you were, if you could put that thing on Daytona or something, yeah. How fast could they get to?
1: I probably could get close to one like mid 160s, maybe 170. Yeah. I don't know. It just, it'll be aero, probably aero drag at that point would slow it yeah. down.
0: Yeah. yeah, for sure. The calmness. You You talked about the calmness of it. What is that for you? How does that work?
1: yeah, you know, um, with everything, you know, even the stuff we do in special tactics, when you jump out of airplanes, or you're diving, um, the, the why to describe it as a calmness is when you're racing, there's nothing else you can really think about, right? Like you're, you're ultra focused on what's going on in that moment. There's no, what happened to me yesterday? What could happen to me tomorrow? It's all about the next 200 to 300 yards in front of you. And so, and all you're worried about is that doing that. And in, in in that moment, to me, it's just very freeing. You don't have any future worries, you know, regrets. There's nothing else that exists, right? It's just you with a race car and the task at hand. And I think from like a mental standpoint, that's just, you know, that, that is, you know, it, to me is very calming. And I, and I feel it, it feeds my soul. Like I come out of race weekends and it's not the rush that I feel great. It's just like, I feel like, man, I just got all this stress and everything else about life is just gone, you know, it just melts away. So I think that's, that's really rewarding to me.
0: I got a feeling that's got to relate to bobsled as well. We'll definitely come back to that. Tell me about that first race, right? So you find your way on the podium at the first race. If memory serves your dad had a role in that race. So tell us a little bit about that story.
1: Yeah. They, um, they did a salute to service weekend that, that weekend. Um, And so you know, I I do this work with a nonprofit called Operation Motorsport that helps disabled veterans and kind of through them, we had discussed doing this big salute to service weekend and they were like, Hey, we want to highlight veterans. And so I was like, Hey, you know, it'd be cool. My dad just retired from the air force after, you know, I think 30 years of service. Um, so I was like, it'd be cool if he could maybe wave the green flag for my first race, which means he gets to start the race for us, stand up in the stand and watch us race underneath. And, uh, and so they were like, yeah, that's really cool. We wanna do that. So for the first race, he got to wave the green flag. I could see him up there, he was wearing a red hat. So it was really easy to notice him. And then every time I come through, I'd see, him. He stayed. he stood there the whole race and got to watch the whole thing all the way to the end. So um, yeah, it was just really cool to, it brought me back to like when I was a kid, you know, my dad would come to all my sporting events and you always are trying to do well to to make your, your folks proud of you. So it was just kind of cool to get to relive a bit of that again um, at, at this level, so. Yeah.
0: I gotta think uh, that's just an amazing moment, right? To be able to experience that with him and and uh, and then to do so well, yeah. <laughs> in that race. it's it's pretty incredible, man. The way that that all plays out, dude. This is this is quite an undertaking, right? The, in and the orchestra of which professional car racing is. You know, I've had the privilege when I was working in television of being at quite a few NASCAR races, an indie race. I mean, it really is. An orchestra is the, probably the best way to
1: explain. Yeah, for sure.
0: So much that's happening. So I got to think there's a ton of people that are sort of helping you throughout this journey, right? Providing the resources, team sponsorship. You're working on a lot of that. Who's helping you through this? I, I know you probably love to give some shout outs. Maybe yeah. Kind of helping you along the way here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, my wife... I would say, first and foremost, you know, this first race we didn't have. I mean, I don't have a ton of background in, in racing. So it's not like I had this huge um, reputation to be like, hey, let me go find sponsors and help me with racing. So this was a big one that we took on ourselves financially to yeah. support. And that was her. She was the one that said, hey, you should go do this. I think, I think it's a good, I think you have the talent and, and I think it's a good, a good idea, um, which was very uh, outside of her character because she is not one to spend money on things like this. Um, so I thought that was really, that was really cool for her to do that. And then I have a couple companies, Chill Out Systems, who makes some in-car cooling, and then a Presser Tech, who does performance tuning down in Georgia. I actually drive another race car for for that um, for Todd, who owns that company. Um, they helped out a lot. And, you know, they and, and just the fact that they gave me support to at the track and provided some other stuff to help help that weekend go. Because you know, it's just like anything; it's an entire team that takes that like the driver gets the success and you see what happens on the track, but to get that car out there and make it successful, there's so much more that happens in the background and really the guys at AOA racing and all those folks that helped me there um, and air force special warfare for, you know, for helping out some too. uh, It was really, really big.
0: Yeah. That's awesome, man. The way they've been able to rally around and and put that around you. All right. What's this, what's this journey look like next? I mean, what, what's, what's coming, what's coming up for you?
1: Yeah. So the rest of the, the, The rest of the calendar, I think at the end of August, the the weekend of the 29th, we have uh, the next race for TC America. And so I'm hoping to, if I find enough sponsorship support to to run the rest of the season and finish out TC America. And then at the end of the year, you know, there's a series called IMSA, um, which is owned by NASCAR. And that's kind of the, I guess, the top level pro series here. And AOA also has uh, a car they run in that series. And so if again, you know, everything works out the way I hope it will, I'll get the chance to race one, one of the races at M's, MS level, which, you know, is live on NBC sports. So that would be, nice. you know, a big, a big deal for me. Um, so hoping, hoping that pans out.
0: Yeah, guys, keep your eyes peeled for Chris as he continues to navigate that journey. What else would you want to race? I mean, car wise, they've done, you've done these, yeah. these cool BMWs. Like there's some other ones out there. Yeah. That I think that you're like, man, I'd love to get behind the wheel of what would that be?
1: I mean, my goal right now is to get to GT three racing. Um, and the Porsche 911 GT three R is just to me is, is one of my favorite cars. So it would be, I mean, I would, any, any GT three car really, but if I had to choose like, that would be, I would love to go get a chance to, to spend some time in that.
0: You, uh, you gotta keep yourself in check when you're driving the family wagon around after, <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so funny. My wife will like, She'll, we'll be driving the minivan and she'll be like, Oh, you're going too fast. And you're know, like, it's like, I know what I'm doing, but uh, right. yeah, she's, let's see what this bad
0: boy can handle.
1: Yeah. She's, she's not into the speed thing. So I definitely have to throttle myself down a little bit.
0: Yeah, Sounds like a good counterbalance, my friend. Yeah, you're for always, sure. Which is always good to have. How the heck did you end up in a bobsled?
1: Well, you know, before, before I decided to take racing on, um, I, I was an athlete my whole life. So I, I went to college and I, I did some college athletics in um, football and ran track. And uh, I just knew there was always that kind of desire to see how far I could take athletics. Um, and the Olympics in my eyes is, Hey, that's the pinnacle that's of athletics. Yeah, um, and I not nearly fast enough to be a track guy straight up. Uh, and so I was just kind of watching the Olympics one year and I saw about bobsled and then I was like oh that's really cool I wonder how people get into that just kind of did a little research and they do a combine process where you can just go try out kind of like the NFL where you do some sprinting you jump you just kind of demonstrate your athletic talents Um so I did that a few times I didn't get it on my first one I had to try a couple of times uh, but eventually got a chance to move, go up to the Olympic training center in New York and um, compete in 2018 with in one of the lower level race series there uh, or circuits they call them and did pretty well. And then I just kept coming back every year and, and staying and competing on the team. So um yeah, that, that's really the the down and dirty of it. It's yeah, very, yeah, yeah,
0: it, we had uh Johnny Stefanowitz on recently, who's an Olympic wrestler, Marine and Olympic wrestler okay, yeah. for the Olympics. So he's gonna ready to head to Tokyo and oh, that's awesome. And apparently wrestle not in front of any fans, because that news just came yeah. out. They're taking that away, but hoping he does well and and uh and goes out there and just accomplishes all his goals correct me if i'm wrong i feel like i've seen stories about military members more than a more than a few involved in us bobsled is that right
1: yeah the um there's a good number of people in the program that either are in the air force world class athlete program or the army world class athlete program and that's mainly because bobsled is just not a sport that gets a ton of external support mm-hmm. and so to for athletes to find a way to um support that dream you know and continue to pursue it and train full-time those programs that they offer in the air force and the army give that ability to in exchange for service obviously but Mm -hmm. um, that is kind of why it's been a pretty popular method because you know the 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 sport's very expensive it's all it's i mean bobsleds a lot like motorsport in the sense like the sleds are the four-man sleds that we push are a hundred thousand plus dollars to buy the two-man sleds are easily 50 to 60. so Pretty but just crazy think The
0: Jamaicans did it with like a $50 sled that you'll yeah in the back. Of- yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, and so with that, you know, not having a huge budget, it's hard to already support all the equipment and logistics and transportation and yeah. then also yeah. support the athletes. So, um, that is why I think you see a high number of military folks doing it. Yeah, which so is also I, great. I yeah. It's really
0: cool, right? Yeah. You know, when, when they're doing you know uh, features and yeah, it's such a neat thing. We talked to Johnny a lot about it as well, and just the you know the, the level of when you put that uniform on to go compete at that stage of really knowing what it means. I mean, yeah. know, because having just that extra vested interest as someone who wears the nation's uniform. Right, yep. potentially into combat uh, to be able to do that. I think it's cool. You, you talked about maybe not a lot of external support. Still, is one of the most electrifying events to watch in the Winter Games, though. So yeah. having strapped in to a car at 160, 170, ripping around that way, maybe keep the Honda Odyssey off the track, but then to also be in that bobsled. What are the similarities? And obviously, there's major differences. But what's yeah. it like comparing both of those two things?
1: Um, You know, the bobsled, I think our top speeds in, in a four man at some tracks will be 90, Dude, 80 to 90 good. miles an hour. That's and no it's deal. not when you're in like a shoot. shoot. ice, yeah. yeah. So the difference is bobsled is very violent. Like there's no mm-hmm. suspension in the sled, right? So everything, the ice is very rough too. It looks smooth to, to people, but I'd say it's even rougher than some asphalt. And so, um, so all that vibration and everything that's happening is translated directly into the sled through the the frame and everything directly into the athletes in the back so you feel every little bump every little pressure squeeze from the g forces so very violent uh so it's 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 different cuz in the back where I'm a push athlete I don't drive uh you don't get to you're not looking up the whole time so you're just like you're head just, down it, all on right? for the ride after you do the push portion so it's a very different it's not as much I wouldn't say it's not fun. It's just a different experience, right? I've done some driving too. um, And and it's different too, because there's no gas or brake. It's just steering inputs. That's all you're doing to the sled. Once it goes off the top, everything is all gravity after that. And so-
0: How much can the driver see when he's driving that thing down the-
1: He can see everything, and the driver sits with his eyes just over the top of the cowling. Yeah, so just. But you can't see
0: anything in the back. No,
1: your head. You want to be as low as you can to create the best aerodynamic profile, so the sled can hit the top speed.
0: outside of training with the actual physical apparatus of pushing the sled, right? All that goes into the push, getting into it, and then running it down. What's What's the day? What's a training day like for a bob sledder? you know
1: yeah that's right 100 bobsled bobsledder um it's a lot like training i mean for me it's a lot like training for football a football kind of track hybrid like you want to be you want to be as big and as strong as you can be but you need to maintain your speed the speed is really important but you also have there's rules in bobsled where you want you can be a certain max weight and the more weight you have plus gravity, you know, that's the most momentum you can build. You want to be close to max weight. Every time you compete, you can be, you can do that two ways. You can have that be the sled is heavy or the people in the sled are really heavy. And ideally you want the lightest sled you can get with the biggest crew so you can push it really fast. But
0: you can't be like massive, right. To be able to fit into that thing.
1: uh, I mean, we have guys that are did
0: Herschel Walker do it? He did. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We have guys that are, yeah, exactly. And I mean, there's guys that are 240. I mean, I'd say every guy's 220, 220 yeah. and above. Some guys just, just under 220. If you're really fast, you can get away with being lighter. Um, but you really want a crew that is like everyone averages out to about 220 pounds around there.
0: If only um, they combined the winter games and the summer games. You know, if the rugby team was down a guy, <laughs> you'd be like, well, we yeah. got a couple of dudes over yeah.
1: there. Yeah. He's, We've actually had one of our guys go over and play rugby for a little yeah. bit, so he's a really talented. Football so super player strong,
0: here. super strong lower body. I mean, so are you talking? I mean, like legit? Like walk me through. I mean, could could a training session involve finding a one man sled on a football field and pushing that thing up and down the field a little? Yeah,
1: bit? yeah. We do a lot of pushes on like prowler sleds and stuff on turf and all that type of stuff. Sled drags, that's all applicable for sure because you're just trying to develop that explosive. drive off the line power because you make all your momentum in a push at the start. You get five, you get 35 meters to, to drive the sled out as far as fast as you can. So being able to, to go from zero to a hundred very, very quickly and accelerate is really, really important. Um, so yeah, guys like squats, sprints, power cleans, Mm -hmm. power snatches, all that stuff, bench press. Like if I'd show you some pictures of the guys, I mean, I'm not, I can, I'm not a big dude. I don't consider myself a big guy. they are you walking around at? Uh I'm probably 215 to 220 right now. I'll, I'll get a little heavier as I get closer to the season. Um, but we have guys that are easily 240, look like you know, they're just bodybuilders, they're just made out of muscle. It's insane. Right. So incredible. I athletes. If I'm wrong,
0: there's not a lot of race car drivers that are that big.
1: No, so, it's not so not normal. Look
0: a little different. I,
1: I do, I don't fit in the I don't fit in the paddock too well. you pretty pretty easy to pick me out, but yeah.
0: All right. So what's the path? to Beijing look like for you, the potential path to to Beijing?
1: Um, So what we have for the rest of the season, actually in two weeks, I'm heading up to the training center to go and we do a thing called push championships, which means uh, you go out and do individual push evaluations. And based on how each athlete does, the drivers will pick the crew that they may wanna compete with that season. Um, And so that plus how you do in combination pushes, plus how the year goes and you finish because we still run a normal bobsled year um we once how you finish at the end of that season all those things kind of go into this equation of how they select the team so um really it's going to be uh, i'm kind of coming back from some injuries the last few years so really it's going to be how well I do in push champs and then what crew I get picked up on and you know it's like anything like some guys get hurt I could get hurt you just don't know so it's a long journey still um until february of next year or i guess the end of january is when they'll name the team so I, you know, I got to just keep trying and do my best and yeah, see what happens. Yeah.
0: Do we um take, mul- could we take multiple teams, to the Olympics? I-, I feel like I've seen yeah. multiple U S bobsled teams in the past.
1: Yeah. We'll have um at least two, two women's teams and two men's teams at a minimum. We can possibly qualify a third. Uh, it'll just kind of depend how the year plays out and where we're ranked internationally. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. Have you, have you given yourself the opportunity to think about what that could be like? or do you try to just stay in the moment of training and, and getting ready for potentially what could be?
1: Yeah, I, I haven't thought that far ahead. I mean, I know, I know that the experience will be remarkable regardless, you know, even if I don't make it, you know, just having gone through all this method, the, met the people that I've met and saying you've competed in the Olympic trials and, and any type of sport at the, you know, it's, it's pretty special. So I'm really thankful for the journey so far. And, you know, I'm, if that happens, I'll be over the moon. But if not, you know, I still got cars to race, and I'm yep. happy with that too. So, just doing the best I can every day is, is all I'm all I'm really focused on, and you know, and hoping that staying healthy is a big thing. So,
0: yeah, you seem like the kind of guys you're just gonna always, you know, find things to keep challenging yourself and and keep keep pushing. But it's that's what we should do, right? You know, you should find opportunities to. To keep doing cool stuff
1: <laughs> absolutely i mean just the things that i always look at like just do the things that kind of set your soul on fire or you know really gives you a, a reason to wake up in the morning you know and if it doesn't like they say if, if you never feel like if you're doing what you love you never really work a day in your life so i'd say that right now with everything i'm doing it's just it doesn't feel like working it, it is a lot of hours for every to, to, to kind of accomplish all this stuff but it doesn't feel like you know it doesn't feel bad to me so
0: all right so you talked about what the race schedule could look like if our listeners like man i want to keep an eye on chris and follow his race journey throughout the rest of the year what's the best way for them to do that
1: i'm really the most active on instagram i'm I'm gonna get a website at some point i'm not there yet but uh so yeah walsh.usa is my instagram account and that's where i post everything pretty much and then uh yeah, that's 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 I'm pretty, pretty simple yeah. and make it easy. Tells, tell source. us the name
0: of the tell us the name of the race series as well too. So, because I yeah. know they could go find that and and look to see where either those maybe are televised online in on some of those races, right? Streaming. Online. Yeah,
1: they're streaming online. They're actually on TV on CBS cool. Sports. They do an encore broadcast. Um, they're not. It's not a live live uh broadcast, but yeah, uh, it's called TC America. It lives under uh, SRO Motorsports america um and gt world challenge america they're all kind of interlinked um so yeah that's that's
0: where it lives nice all right find them on instagram we'll connect in the future because it's not a story for this podcast and i'll tell you about the time i hung out with tony stewart in a bar until 3 a.m
1: that sounds cool i definitely want to hear about that (laughs)
0: that was a good that was a good night to say the least chris walsh major chris walsh uh air force man race car driver bob sledder The guy's going fast uh, in every walk of life. I've I've had such a fun time, man. It's been great to connect with you, and we wish you nothing but success as you move forward.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: All right. He's Major Chris Walsh. I'm Brian Jodis, and this has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.